and um, uh, I wanted us to think about the problem, the very real problem that we have uh, as a community, as a culture, as a world um, with this, this issue that um, the world is full of violence, isn't it? Uh, we've just heard uh, some stories of a particular kind of violence that happens against children around the world. Um, but that story can be multiplied everywhere. <laughs> like the world's a mess, right? Uh, it's been an interesting week for me. Um, uh, Robert Mugabe, some of you might know, who was the uh, uh, liberator, freedom fighter, who uh, moved Rhodesia from out of white rule into independence and Zim- became Zimbabwe and then ruled as a dictator for 37 years, died. And um, I don't know where all of you grew up, but growing up in Rhodesia and then Zimbabwe and then uh, seeing the, the uh, evil made manifest in so many ways and violence made manifest in so many ways for so long uh, is uh, so traumatic. Um, And uh, online, just the responses to Mugabe's death, he died at 95 after being uh, taken out by a soft coup uh, from leadership two years ago. Uh, It's fascinating, the outpouring from some circles of just hatred and rejoicing in his death I thought, wow, that's extraordinary. I mean, I don't feel that. Um, but I do feel, I, you know, I do. He's just one example. And you go, yeah, Mugabe, Mugabe, terrible, terrible, terrible. But you go all around the world. It's everywhere, right? And what do we do about that? <laughs> and, what's, and if you're a person of faith, right, where's God in that? Um, here's one thing you can do about it that we do about it very often, isn't it? And one thing is... We, can, we find a particularly egregious or outstanding examples of evil like a, a Mugabe or you go to your you know, high school debating tactic of you know, um, uh, Hitler or Pol Pot and you go, that, that's evil, that's terrible, you know, that's so bad. How could anybody ever be like that? That's unconscionable, that's awful. But, but listen, um, the truth of the matter is... Uh, it's not just the evil out there. It's not just a Mugabe or a, a tyrant or a dictator somewhere in the world. If we examine our own experience of life and our own hearts, and we're honest, and, and that's a, sometimes very, very hard to do, isn't it true that there is inside every human heart a tendency to use our own power and privilege to protect and enrich ourselves? I mean, that's just there isn't it maybe and and i i often think i think about this a lot and i think the only reason (laughs) not the only reason a reason why my uh why i haven't been as evil as i could have been is because i haven't had the opportunity (laughs) you know what i mean like i don't have that much power I don't have that much privilege. I don't have that much wealth. Because here's the thing, right? Uh, oppression and injustice always flows down the power hierarchy. Oppression and injustice always flows down the power hierarchy. And so I'm just not very high up the hierarchy. <laughs> so I don't have much power. I can't oppress anyone. But uh, honest to goodness, I, that's in me, 
you know. And I know it because I can look at how when I have power over others, there's, a, there's an ineluctable tendency in my own heart to use that for my own good. And when someone with power uses their power for their own good, guess who tends to... Uh, a guess who tends to be oppressed and used by that power? Well, it's someone who's weaker and more vulnerable. That's what we do. You see it in the workplace all the time, don't you? You go to your average workplace and you look at the power hierarchy and you'll see that you know the oppression and the injustice, and it could be little things or it could be big things, tends to always get worked out down the tree, right? Governments churches, schools, families. Um, Why do we have such a problem globally with gender-based violence? Why are women so uh, treated so poorly and murdered at such a high rate and raped and assaulted at such a great rate? Why is that the case? Well, it's because there's a power hierarchy. Men have the power. And in the, at a very brute level, it's just sheer physical power. And so what happens in the power hierarchy? Oppression and injustice flows down at the expense of those further down. And globally, that's women and children. And it's in all of us. It's out there for sure. And I'm looking out here and I'm not seeing any Mugabes here, which is good. Comrade Bob is not here. Um, but I look out and I see people like me. And I see that the, the problem isn't just there, it's here. And so that's really confronting and challenging, isn't it? Well, it is for me. Because the problem is very deep. And what that says is uh, if, uh, addressing injustice in the world is like a cosmic game of whack-a-mole. You know that little that, that kid's game of whack-a-mole where... You'd have a, you know, you have this game and something pops up and you've got to bang it down and then it comes up another hole and you bang it down and it comes up and you bang it down and that's whack-a-mole. Like, or or you, can, you can literally do it in our garden in Zimbabwe. We have this infestation of moles and you'd, you'd pour poison down one and then they'd pop up another place and you'd pour poison down there. So then you'd get clever and you'd drive your car onto the lawn and you'd put a hose pipe on the back of the pipe and you'd pump carbon monoxide into the holes and you'd try and get the moles that way but they'd keep popping up everywhere, right? That's whack-a-mole. Uh, evil and injustice is like whack-a-mole. Because the thing is, you, you whack a Mugabe, you whack someone who's doing something here, and, and it just pops up elsewhere because the seeds of injustice grow in the heart of every human person. They're planted there. It's just a question of are they going to take root and are they going to grow? Well, what else is going to grow in their place? So the answer is, if you're a person of faith, or even if you're a person without faith and you're struggling and you're questioning, one of the most profound questions you can grapple with is the question Hiroko talked about is, what the heck is God doing with this, right? Like, how did we get here? If there is a God and he made this world and is somehow responsible for this world, what's he doing? Is he like a... It, it, it would be a bit like a... Is God like the, an, an absent parent 
who has a, you know, invites a bunch of kids over for a, their kids, the you know, toddler's little birthday party, puts them out in the backyard with a sand pit and an open swimming pool, and then goes back into the house, closes the door, and, and isn't involved and leaves them to sort it out. Like, that's sometimes how we think about God, right? That's what he's done with the world. He's got it going, and it seems like he's just checked out. Sometimes, don't you ever think that? No, that's a good thing to think about. Well, I want to say this, and it's, um, this is not in any way a full answer to the very real problem of evil and injustice in the world. But on this Freedom Sunday, I want to say the way God gets involved is by... Uh, he knows the problem. He knows what's planted in our hearts. And he knows our extraordinary potential for good. Um, he knows the fact that, as Blaise Pascal said, we are both the glory and the garbage of the universe. So how does he address it? Well, he, he addresses it through people because the problem of injustice and evil in the world is almost entirely the problem of people. So if you're going to address the problem of injustice, you've got to address people and you've got to figure out how to change their hearts. So how does he do that? Well, when you start reading the Bible and you read it from the beginning to the end, you see it's this extraordinary story where it starts with the world good, right? Adam and Eve, garden, fantastic, beautiful, uh, no, no power hierarchy, no oppression, no injustice. That, that, that steps into the world in the third chapter of the book of the Bible, and it's all downhill after that. Like very soon after that, there's blaming, there's shame, there's, uh, there's fratricide, Cain kills Abel, brothers kill Abel, violence multiplies, and the poor have the, uh, have the life beaten out of them from Genesis 3 onwards. And what is God's response? Well, he says the problem, the, the original glory came in people. The people stuffed it up. The answer has to be people. And uh, I want to suggest this. There's, a, there's three, we, we, need, we need three sorts of people, and we see this in the Bible. Uh, God sends to solve the problem of injustice prophets, priests, and kings. This is the story of the Old Testament in like five minutes. What, is, what do we need? Well, we need prophets. God says, I'm going to send prophets. He says, I'm going to send priests. I'm going to send kings. Let's start from the bottom up and say kings. Why do we need kings? Why does God bless his people with kings? What's the rule? What's the primary role of a king or a ruler or government in a world? What's their main function? The social contract we enter into with a king is what? The prime. Sorry? Create order, yep. Justice, yes. So you see what we say, what, what a king has to do, what a good ruler does, is, uh, is stop the kids fighting over the toys in the sandpit and bring justice and accountability. That's why a breakdown of law and order, uh, anarchy is terrifying. All you're left with, if there is no king, is the raw exercise of power, which means inevitably down that power hierarchy, the poor and the vulnerable will be oppressed. Kings come in, and what the deal we make with, gov with government is we cede a whole bunch of our personal liberties and rights and freedoms to the government so that they will restrain violence and protect us. And God institutes that in the Bible by sending kings to do that. But here's the problem. What has been planted deep in the heart of the kings? 
is the very same seeds of selfishness and injustice. So when you read the Bible, what you discover is the kings that God gives to his people themselves become corrupt and use their power, their God-given power and privilege and position to in fact oppress the poor and perpetuate injustice. So that's a problem. So what does God do then? Well, he sends prophets along. And what are the, what's the role of a prophet? It's a messenger from God. Yeah, yeah. What else? Warnings. Tell the truth. So what does a prophet do? The prophet comes from God to stand in front of the king and go, Hey, king, you are an abomination. You are taking your God-given power and privilege and instead of using it to protect all, particularly the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, you are using your power for yourself. That's the God-given role of the prophet. We, we read those verses, Isaiah 58, the prophet saying, this is how God wants you to live and you're not living like that. And that's a, that's a travesty and an evil. It's not a popular occupation being a prophet. Didn't end well for lots of the prophets. Most of them get killed in the Bible. But what's the problem with the prophets, right? What's planted in their hearts? The same seed of selfishness. So what do you see happening in, when you read the Old Testament? What do you see happening with the prophets? Well, the prophets start going, ah, this whole confronting the king's business, that's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> like I could lose my life. And I like my life. So I'm not going to do that. So in fact, what the prophets ended up doing is the prophets say to the, the, say to the kings, ah, you know what, you're all right. Make a treaty with the foreign nations. God's on your side. It's all going to be just fine. Don't listen to these whingers like Jeremiah and Isaiah. They've got it wrong. It's not that bad. You're really okay. So even the prophets start to misuse their position and their power to protect themselves, to secure patronage from the kings. Say, so okay, well, the world's a mess. You got kings, you got prophets. You also need priests. What do priests do? A little trickier. They talk to God on behalf of the people, yeah. They make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Why do they do that? Well, the heart of the role of the priest and the, in the sacrificial system is to bring healing for what's gone wrong. To bring healing, to make things right. The sacrifices are designed to cover over and deal with the evil in the hearts of people, to bring reconciliation between people and reconciliation between people and God. That's what the priests are meant to do. So God says, you beauty, I've got kings to protect the poor, make society work. I've got prophets to keep them accountable, and I'll whack in some priests to bring healing when things go wrong. That's the, stra that's the strategy, right? Pretty simple. It's a good strategy, isn't it? It's a really good, it's what we need. But when you read the Old Testament, what happens with the priests? What's planted in the hearts of the priests? The same selfishness that's in our hearts. 
So when you read the Old Testament, what you find is the priests start doing what the kings and the prophets did. They use their position and their power to secure their own advantage. They turn the whole system of religion that's meant to provide healing and wholeness and flourishing for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. They turn this into a whole system for making money for themselves. And that's why Jesus was a little ticked at them when he went into the temple and he overturned the money changers. And he, had, he had harsh words to say uh, for the priests who instead of bringing healing brought even more oppression. So that's... So now, can you imagine God? God's like looking down and he says, well, I started the world. It was great, beautiful people. Then they really messed it up. Then I set up a whole structure to fix it. But the kings I put in were selfish. The prophets I put in were selfish. The priests I put in were selfish. So what the heck am I going to do? Well, one last roll of the dice, hey? <laughs> one last crack at it. What's the last roll of the dice that God has? He says, what I need is I need a king who will never misuse his power. I'll need a prophet who will always tell the truth. I'll need a priest who's effective to bring healing for all, but particularly the vulnerable, the least, the last, and the lost. And he looked around the world and he goes, the problem is, is there's no one there to do it because like planted in the seed of every human heart is this ineluctable tendency to mess things up. So the, the, the story of Christianity, which is what makes it unique in all the world, all the history of world religions, and what makes it so utterly compelling is that God doesn't rely on humans now to solve their own problem from within. He says, I'm going to step into the world and I will be for the world myself, the one true king, the one true prophet, the one true priest. That's Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to the failure of government, the failure of truth-telling and the failure of healing in the world. He says, I'm going to come. And what we see in Jesus is the one king who though he has all the power in the world, he is God himself, he empties himself of that. He doesn't hold on to his power. He, in, instead of Jesus' power flowing down the hierarchy, to uh, a power hierarchy to oppress the poor, we see a complete inversion where Jesus becomes utterly poor so that his power can actually flow up and bring healing and justice to all, starting from the bottom. We see the one king who gives up all of his authority and power so that he can bring into place uh, a government and a rule of the world where justice is finally done. Uh, here's the paradox of Christianity. Uh, Jesus, as the one truly innocent person, absorbs into himself the greatest injustice ever. See, when Jesus is falsely accused, falsely tried, and then murdered, he's the only truly innocent person. He's the only person who's ever lived who never deserved any punishment, isn't he? And he's God himself, perfect in every way, and uh, dies at the hands of the most extraordinary injustice. And why does he do that? Because he's the king who's come to die so that in his dying, in his, uh, in his absorbing of the injustice of the world, he might make possible ultimate justice. Where that, that bit of evil and selfishness in every human heart can be crucified along with Jesus, can die, and we can actually 
rise again into a world where the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized are, uh, are never oppressed, are never impoverished, and are brought into the very center of God's family. And then Jesus, you know, why did he die? Well, he's the prophet. God says, you know what, human t- we all screw up the telling of the truth, right? Well, Jesus says, no, I'm come as the truth. And he points out the truth. And no one likes that. You may, um, I have a bit of a tendency to point out the truth to people, don't I? If you've been around me a little while, you'll know that sometimes I, I, do, I think it's important I found that people don't like it very much, yeah? (laughs) It's really uncomfortable. And here's the truth I find about myself. When I look at Jesus, here's the truth I find. The prophet Jesus comes and says, you know what, Mark? You are so bad. The seed of selfishness is planted so deep in your soul that I, God himself, had to die for you. That's how messed up you are, Mark. And I'm like, oh, that's not really nice, Jesus. I'm actually a pretty well self-actualized, professionally religious, uh, middle-class Roselle resident. Uh, I'm, I'm not that bad, am I? I mean, and I know you're certainly not that bad. I mean, you don't come to church to be told you're that bad, do you? Except you are, and I am, and I know that and I know that because Jesus says that. That's the whole point of his life and his death as he shines a massive, great, big spotlight on the seeds of selfishness pointed in my heart and in your heart. And he says, you know the problem with child sex traffic in Cambodia? Well, it's your heart and it's my heart. You know the problem with online sexual exploitation of children from the Philippines? It starts in your heart and in my heart. You know the problem with gender-based violence in Uganda? It starts in your heart and in my heart. That's the problem, right? It's not out there. It's, the, it's here because it's every person's problem. That's the horrible, awful, ugly truth that Jesus shows. And that was, that was unpopular when Jesus was around, and it's kind of unpopular now, isn't it? But you know the other truth that Jesus says is we are so bad that he had to die, but we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. That's what Jesus, that's the other truth the prophet says. He says, you know, Mark, I see your selfishness. Man, I see how inadequate you are. But I'm glad to die for you because I love you. (sighs) What a prophet. You know what? He says that message to the traffickers in Cambodia and in the Philippines. He says that same message to the perpetrators of gender-based violence says that same message to the owners of brick kilns in India, rock quarries, who for generations violently oppress slaves. He says to them the same thing he says to me. You're so bad that I had to die, and you're so loved that I was glad to die. That's the truth. That is revolutionary. See, how do you change the human heart? How do you bring about any behavioral change? It's never just by pointing out people's flaws. I mean, that doesn't work. That just crushes us. But when we see who we really are, and then we see that we, how really loved we are, that is the, that's the genius, that's the secret source for human transformation. So I don't have to pretend to be anything but the glory and the garbage of the universe, and I don't have to work to get loved or heal myself or sort myself out because Jesus says I'm so loved. And that's the third thing, that he's also the priest. He's the priest. 
who alone can bring the healing that our world needs because the sacrifice he offers is not the sacrifice of bulls or goats or animals or grain. It's his very own life is poured out to bring the healing this world needs. That's, that's it. That's what we need, you know? A healing that goes way, way, way deeper than kind of behavior modification, a restoration of all of our human interactions and connections, a healing of my heart, a healing of your heart, a healing of our connection with God. That's what Jesus offers as our divine human priest. So then, Jesus does all of this. What next? Well, he says to you and to me, he says, hey, come, come and come connect with me as your prophet, as your priest, as your king. Learn who you are as I tell you the truth about who you are. Come under my rule. Learn to live life under my care and protection and justice bringing kingdom. And then find healing in me. And then what? Jesus says to you and to me, he says, I'm going to make you into a group of people. And what I want you to do is go out into the world as prophets, priests, and kings yourselves. He says that's what, we want, that's what he wants us to do, right? How are we going to change the world? How are we going to heal the world? Well, we've got, got to go out into the world, shining the light of Jesus, and, which is another way of saying, telling the truth about the world as prophets. It's part of what Hiroko is doing when she sits and she takes detailed reports from the IJM field and she puts it together and then she uses that to speak truth to our, our government at a, at a state and federal level. What are we doing? We're saying to government, here's the truth about the nature of the exploitation of the poor in the world and that is an unthinkable evil and we should do something about it. And it's not good enough, Australia, to sit in our quiet comfort, suck up all the riches and the wealth that we enjoy and not care that our brothers and sisters around the world are being uh, oppressed so violently and betrayed by their own governments. You tell the truth. That's very uncomfortable. You tell the truth that the average consumer in Australia has a whole raft of slaves working in the supply chain of all the goods and products we buy. We are complicit in, in modern-day slavery, each and every one of us here, for sure. Tell the truth that says it's not good enough to accumulate more and more wealth for ourselves. While people die for a lack of basic protection and security and sanitation and health care and education. We just get richer and richer. And man, we're rich. That's the truth that we've got to tell. Life is short. We're going to be held to account for what we do with our lives. You're going to have to stand up one day and you have to say to the God who made you, well, this is how I cared for the least and the last and the last. This is how I cared for the poor. Okay. What's that look like? That's a very uncomfortable truth. And the truth we've got to tell is that, you know what? There's only one person who ever got this world right, and that was Jesus. The rest of us, man, we're a mess, but, you know, we're gloriously loved. So let's get on the journey, man. And then we've got to take up the work of kings. That's, where, that's what I love about the work of IJM. IJM is about uh, setting in place, helping the kings of the world be good kings. 
Obviously not literal kings necessarily. What IJM does, its model of justice as system transformation is about equipping and empowering the local governments to do what government is meant to do, which is use, build a functioning justice system to protect the poor. That's the big long-term goal of IJM to work globally with partners around the world, that governments do what governments are meant to do, and that's a Christian thing to do, and that's what we're meant to do, and we can't rest until that happens. And it can happen. Governments are just human systems that can be reformed. We know it can happen. And then we've got to be priests, dear friends. We've got to be priests. That is, we've got to be people who bring the healing of God to the world to help them connect with God to help them face their own sin, to help them face their own need for salvation, to help them find everything they've been looking for. We've got to be those who say, you know, it's, it's, it's actually in the end, the problem is so deep that your heart needs to be changed and healed. You need to be born again and reconnected with this God. Got to be those priests. And you know what? Um, the the trajectory of following Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king is a trajectory of giving up your life, of pouring yourself out for the good of others. It's a trajectory of suffering and hardship. It's a trajectory that takes you to the cross, on the other side of which comes the glory. You can't go, you can't go from here straight to the glory. Let me tell you, you talk to anyone who works in IJM, you talk to anyone who works with the poor and the oppressed, you go actually to authentically, deeply follow Jesus in that work. And I would say to authentically follow Jesus in this world in which we live, you will be on a path of suffering and hardship and self-giving sacrifice. You will be crucified. You will be rejected. You will be marginalized. You will suffer. You will be poorer than you would otherwise have been. That is just the Christian life if you follow Jesus. But on the other side of that is glory. On the other side of that is a world where there's no more suffering. On the other side of that is a world where creation is renewed. On the other side of that is a world where no child is ever trafficked anymore. No woman is ever murdered by intimate partner violence. A world where no one ever starves to death. A world where no one's dignity is robbed by, by terrible labor laws. That's the world that's coming. And we get to participate by journeying with Jesus on a path of self-giving. Self-giving kings, self-giving prophets, self-giving priests because the hope of glory is ahead of us. Say there's like two billion followers of Jesus in the world. If two billion followers of Jesus authentically, courageously follow Jesus on that path of being prophet, priests, or kings, what do you think would happen to injustice in the world? We'd make more than a dent. I'm not responsible for the two billion Christians out there. I'm responsible for me. And I have some responsibility for the care of your souls. So I say, that's the path we're on, friends. If we want to follow Jesus, that's the path. That's wonderful. Hope is amazing. We've got to do it together because it's hard. And we have
have wonderful partners like IJM who can go places where we can't go. We're, we're planted here in Roselle and Belmain and Sydney. But we can partner with organizations like IJM and go, there, there, goes, there are our hands and our feet into the slums in the Philippines, into the brick kilns in India. There are our hands and feet into the, you know, the governments of Uganda and, uh, and Ghana. There are our hands and feet working to reform the police system in Kenya. We'll partner with them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, uh, thank you for your love for us, that you are our, our great king, our great priest, our great prophet. I thank you that we can follow you in that calling in the world, and we can live for you. I thank you for our sisters and brothers in IJM who have a particular calling to live this out, to bring reform of justice systems, to help the kings of this world be the kings that you want them to be. And I pray for our church that you will never let us become uh, false prophets, selfish kings, and lazy priests. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. We're going to worship. There is power in worship, friends. You might think, 